0: Welcome to another episode of Cause Essential ESG Podcast, coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. My name's Phoebe Winpope, and I'm the Head of Responsible Business at Cause. and today I'm here with Sandy Mack, who's our Head of Corporate and M&A. Sandy's market-leading M&A lawyer and acts for both corporate and private equity clients across the globe on cross-border public and private mergers and acquisitions, foreign investment, equity raisings, buybacks and restructurings. She also advises on ASIC and ASX regulatory work, foreign investment regulations and corporate governance issues. She's consistently and constantly been listed as a leading lawyer by legal directories and publications, including Chambers and Partners and Best Lawyers. And in 2020, she was named Dealmaker of the Year in both the Lawyers Weekly Australian Law Awards and the Women in Law Awards. Sandy, it's great to have you on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me, Phoebe.
0: I'm going to launch straight in. We're so excited to talk to you about ESG in your space. So it's on the rise really in all facets of the corporate world. What are your predictions for 2023 in respect of ESG and M&A? So I think ESG
1: considerations in M&A probably have um, there are two aspects to them. The, the, the first is M&A transactions, the genesis of which is driven by ESG considerations. Um, so where acquisitions and disposals are being undertaken with the purpose of achieving specific ESG outcomes and goals. So for example, carbon intensive companies that are looking to rationalize portfolios, decommission assets, by companies in order to offset their carbon emissions and in order to hit the targets that they have disclosed to their stakeholders. A lot of M&A in the space is being driven by this very specific targeted focus of trying to achieve a
0: particular ESG outcome. When you're seeing that is the ESG elements looked at equally so uh, uh buyers and sellers thinking about the E and the S and the G parts of ESG on an equal basis or are you finding that there's more emphasis in one space? Well, I think historically
1: e-, e has been front of mind for most people like it's just the most obvious one and there are many companies in which where the space in which they operate makes it a natural focus for them so any anyone in the fossil fuel industry carbon intensive industries, you know, the, the E part of ESG becomes a really big factor. And in some ways, it's easier to measure, isn't it? That part. Oh, yes, absolutely. And the fact that we've got net zero commitments, you know, energy transition strategies that align to Paris Agreement targets make it, uh, as I said, a driver. A lot of the m a transactions which are driven by an ESG outcome are in the E space. The S and the G considerations lag a little bit behind, but I think this is changing. Um, and they, they really... Are much more evident in that due diligence phase um, that we were talking about. You know, in every acquisition, buyers are now looking to ensure, not only but environmentally, but socially, and from a governance perspective, that these businesses have been run in a manner that is consistent with the way in which they want to be able to um, to to be accountable to their stakeholders as acquirers of businesses.
0: Yeah. So we have the, we have climate change really as a driver for the E. Peace And what do you think are the main drivers really pushing that S&G pace forward? Human rights is absolutely one of them. Uh,
1: human rights accountability, good governance, modern slavery, you know, all of this. I mean, you saw that in the, the Qatar uh, World Cup and the backlash in some, uh, some sectors in, in relation to that event um, where human rights uh, breaches and a lack of public tolerance was just really evident. By certain companies and a lot of you know people withdrawing support, sponsorship, uh, broadcasting the rights like France, uh, you know, the, broadcasting the event publicly. Um, so it it really does go to show that you know modern slavery, human rights, sort of elements of it are very very big. A lot of people don't necessarily see cyber and data breaches as part of the S, but I think it is. Cybersecurity, the handling of sensitive customer data, is not only a real. Business consideration and uh, you know an IT consideration, but it really is a social consideration as well because you are handling large amounts of customer, employee, and personal data, uh, which you have an obligation as a company to to treat in an appropriate and sensitive way, uh, not just with a minimum level of legislative compliance, but also to go above and beyond because you've got you've got information that's personal to people.
0: There are other drivers aren't there like there's so much more regulation and more stakeholders who are invested in looking at whether companies are actually doing what they say they'll do in this
1: space. Oh yes, without a doubt. Um and and I think you know on the e-side as we were talking about we've seen for a long time a big focus on greenwashing. We've seen expectations amongst our regulators like ASIC, APRA, the ACCC in relation to ensuring that your disclosure is fulsome and not misleading, um, and certainly you know best practice at TCFD style. In relation to the SNG points though, so we now have legislation that drives a lot of that requirement to comply, like the Modern Slavery Act, which has penalties for non-compliance and a mandatory due diligence component. Uh, and then recently, uh, well, when I say recently, October last year, it came into force, the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, SOCI, um, and that puts a whole new level of uh, compliance on companies that are likely to be in these sort of critical infrastructure businesses that handle a lot of data and, and there's an expectation in relation to reporting on cyber compliance on a regular basis as well. So you've got a minimum baseline from a legislative perspective, but on top of that, you've also got a lot of stakeholder expectation and
0: in the current environment, I don't think that, Just enough is good enough. So it is that interesting space, isn't it, between the legislative requirements and doing what's required as a minimum and then what's required by stakeholders and investors and that's the difficult space right it's that how much more do we need to be doing to get
1: this right it's just social license that everyone keeps talking about the social license to operate
0: I wonder if you can talk about any examples either confidentially if you can't mention particular clients or or organizations or any examples that you feel like you can talk about where ESG is really impacting and or where you've specifically seen it impacting in the work that you're doing?
1: So if we take that first category of, of m and transactions, which are driven by ESG outcomes, there have been a couple of examples. BHP selling its petroleum portfolio to Woodside was an example. Origin Energy, uh, the bid for Origin Energy for, uh, by Brookfield and EIG. We've seen a lot of activity, very, very contested uh, bids in the Perth basin for oil and gas, for mostly gas. And there is a view amongst a number of players in the industry that gas still has a significant role to play in the energy transition process. And so some companies are at a stage in their development and cycle from an ESG perspective where they are ready to exit. Other companies are ready to take these things on in order to transition into something else and so there are lots of drivers that from an environmental and climate change perspective we're seeing a lot of these deals getting done so when you do these sort of M&A transactions you have to also consider the stakeholder background and the likelihood of success or failure in the context of again not just because it's legal and it can be done but is is it something that your stakeholders are going to get arced up about. um, And there's a risk in that. So there's a key demonstration of the vulnerabilities of transactions, you know, to external pressure where the transactions don't align with the ESG objectives of your major stakeholders. And you really have to start from that point before you launch into your M&A
0: activity. I think one one of the things that we see a lot is that the ESG narrative for different business and different organisations is different depending on your risks, right? So depending on the industry, depending on where your most salient risks are and and being able to think about that in the context, as you say, of your own stakeholders and what that looks like. It will create a different picture for
1: everybody. It is evident that public listed companies are held to a much higher standard than private companies. And and I don't know if that's necessarily a, a good thing all the time. Uh, because you can end up in a situation where you take some of these ESG considerations out of the public eye simply because people find it just too difficult in the public space to keep owning carbon-intensive uh, you know, businesses where they are constantly under scrutiny from it. I, I think that there, that's an interesting conversation that people are not always talking about as to whether or not some of this ESG uh, M&A activity is actually the right thing from an ESG perspective.
0: What about overseas? What are, what trends are we seeing um, in Australia that are kind of reflective of those broader goals? So
1: what we are seeing is that in a number of jurisdictions like the US, the European Union, Japan, there's a, been a significant uptick in, in M&A deals which have the word ESG in it. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, any any transactions that you know involve renewable energy, decarbonization, carbon neutral, you know, and there's um there's an a organization uh, in the UK called Hamilton Partners that has done a survey and it's reported a 173% increase in MA deals that target ESG tech support analysis firms in the first half of 22 compared to 2019. And it's just it's indicative of the fact that um, so when we talk about ESG Driven MA activity. We're not just talking about buying and selling a fossil fuel business. We're talking about the businesses that support carbon capture technologies, software, tech, all sorts of things that are actually driving you towards a better ESG outcome. Clearly, that has been the trend um, in in the US and in Europe. And when whatever they do, we tend to see will occur in Australia. Uh, Australia is also just a fabulous place for renewable energy opportunities. I think you know our geography uh, lends itself to fantastic. Uh, renewable opportunities here. My prediction is that we are going to be really well placed to take advantage of all those opportunities and hopefully see not just development but then also more MA activity in that renewable space.
0: So Sandy, with all of this environment and all of these trends, what should our clients be aware of when acting in this M&A space?
1: I think the key takeaway here is that poor ESG is a key risk for both buyers and for sellers. Um, so so buyers want to avoid transactions with evidence of poor ESG practices and sellers will lose out on lucrative opportunities for profit as a result of poor ESG practices. Um, so buyers, who, who they do want to be assured of the ability to build and strengthen saleability and value of the target post-acquisition as well. So there's you know particularly private equity if there's turnaround play involved. What we are seeing that's really interesting, and we didn't see that five years ago, is uh, when we kick off an MA process and you bring in the specialist advisors, you have the legal work stream, you have the fin- financial work stream, you have the tax work stream, and now you have the ESG work stream. It is a whole separate due diligence work stream that, that we didn't see five years ago. Um, so it goes to show the level of importance that private equity buyers are placing on ESG related matters. Um, and And it's because they recognise that there are just some significant consequential losses that can
0: flow from the damage to A, reputation and B, economics, if you don't get the ESGPs right. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that they're also seeing it as an opportunity? So understanding what those risks might be or where the vulnerabilities might be, but it it actually could be an opportunity for value creation? Absolutely. I think that's definitely the case. And we have seen it with some
1: of our own clients and some of our own deals where they they look at a particular target and they say, well, this is not up to scratch and this is not consistent with what we would do, but then they apply their own standards to it and you actually do get a better outcome. It is all about identifying risk up to a point to work out whether or not you can change it or whether it's
0: so endemic that reputationally it's going to cause you a problem going forward. When we're thinking about this whole space, obviously it's a lot of it's new and For some, you know, CEOs and company directors and executives, they're not exactly sure what the implications are for them. Are there consequences for those individuals involved in companies in this space?
1: There's definitely a link between good ESG practices and disclosure and director's duties. I don't think anyone disputes that. Um, So in order to discharge your duties properly as a director of a company, you need to have regard to the ESG considerations. And E was particularly forefront of everyone's mind at the time about climate change. When you put an M&A lens on it, then the question becomes, if you do an M&A deal as buyer or seller, and it's a bad one from an ESG perspective, other than consequences for you as a director from a director's duty perspective as a result of undertaking those transactions. And I think the answer to that is yes. And, And it's not a direct breach of a director's duty it might be, but I think that would be harder to prove. I, I think the issue is reputational. I do think that there are transactions that when you embark upon an MA deal, you have to recognise, particularly if you're listed, that the world will look at that transaction and it will judge whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing from an ESG perspective and, and whether you've done the right thing. Directors do have to demonstrate if you're on the buy side, that the acquisition will be in the best interest of the company for over the long term and that they have considered a full range of risks, uh, including ESG risks. Um, so that, I think, is your minimum
0: baseline. Sandy, it's been a really great conversation. I wonder if you could just give us a couple of key takeaways, those important things for people to be thinking about to go away with at the end of this podcast.
1: So I think my key takeaway for would be that uh, planning cannot be underestimated. Just just looking forward a little bit um, in in the M&A process from an ESG perspective. Uh, Should I be doing the deal? And if I am doing the deal, what level of diligence do I need to be undertaking in order to ensure that I have accurately identified ESG risks and and value opportunities? Uh, Detailed forward planning, especially for acquirers. Um, And then for, for targets, Consideration of alternative strategies and and restructure options if the acquisition doesn't pan out, and and particularly for public companies, when you're put in play uh, by an approach uh, to acquire the company, often not as a result of anything proactive that the board has done, but suddenly the company becomes the focus. Uh, in the financial press, you know, in a whole range of media. If it falls over, and if it falls over for ESG reasons, and that for some reason becomes public, I think that you as a target board really do need to start thinking about your messaging to the market. You know, what what is the message that you want to give to your shareholders um, as to the plan for this company going forward, why you back it, what it means, and to counteract any negative ESG perceptions that might have been cast. I mean, I think this is true for any takeover defense, frankly. Uh, whether you walk away for value reasons, you know, or for ESG reasons, uh, but I think, you know, from an ESG perspective, as we've seen, it can be particularly reputationally difficult for directors. So, a fallback um, and and an alternative message uh, for being proactively and meaningfully engage with your shareholder base from an ESG perspective I think is really important.
0: Thanks a lot Sandy, it's been a really great conversation and I'll look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you for having me Phoebe. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal or other advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.